Would you open your Bibles to the book of John one more time? We've been focused on this book of John uh, through this uh, season of Holy Week, and we looked last week at the humble Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, and then on Good Friday, uh, we looked at this marvelous cry of the Lord, this cry of victory on the cross, it is finished. And now, this morning, we'll look at the man who missed the resurrection, the Apostle Thomas, who uh, wasn't there when it mattered, and then had uh, quite an obstacle to overcome, to come to fullness of faith in Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 24. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, unless I see his, uh, sorry, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, later John is counting inclusively, so this is the next Sabbath, the next, or the next Sunday, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Father, we pray that each of us, as we encounter your word afresh, would know life in your name. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, uh, we had a concert here at Emmanuel. We don't do this very often, and so I was excited. I wanted to be at this concert. Uh, two people I wanted to hear very much were headlining, and many of our members were performing. Uh, Frankie Leo, one of our current members, was gonna be opening up. Uh, Sarah Sparks, one of my favorite singer-songwriters on the planet, was headlining, I wanted to be there. 
My children wanted to be there. We loaded up the car, it's time to go. We got onto the Gene Schneider, we're gonna be on time, minor miracle in my home. And uh, we got a flat tire. And so I, by the grace of God, I did the right thing. Made two phone calls. I called an Uber, or I guess an apt an Uber, but I'm not sure how you say that. So anyway, I, I got an Uber, and, uh, and I called a tow truck. And the Uber arrived first, and I, I sent all my children off to joy and happiness. And I, uh, I did what any responsible father would do. I, I practiced the sacred art of contentment on the side of the 265. Waited a very long time for the tow truck, my fault. Told him the wrong place to go. Finally got there. About the best I can say for the night is that I got home safe. You know, you know, you know it's never a good night when the highlight is, well, we got home safe. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good I missed it story. And I bet if we went around this room and we said, okay, tell me, you know, get, get a big campfire with 500 of your closest friends or whatever, and you started telling I missed it stories. I slept in, and would you believe what I missed? Or all my friends had money to go see, and I didn't have money to go see. We would all have a ton of hilarious and heartbreaking stories about the one that got away, about the situation we missed, about the time we missed out on some amazing event. But if at the campfire we were ever privileged to have the Apostle Thomas sit down with us, all of us would just, we would stop with our I missed out tales because we would recognize that here was a guy who has the ultimate I missed it story. The Apostle Thomas is, is the grand poobah of I missed out. He is the reigning and undisputed world heavyweight champion of I missed out on a critical moment story guy. And because the Apostle Thomas was one of those few people who could, I don't know if anyone can expect this, but if anybody could expect this, He's one of the few people who could expect that he was gonna have backstage passes to see the first appearance of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared after his resurrection, not at first to thousands. He did eventually appear to over 500, 1 Corinthians tells us. But initially, it's to Mary. Then the empty tomb is seen by Peter and John. And then the first group sighting is when Jesus comes to his own, well, they're called the 12. I mean, it's even the name sort of says inner circle. He comes to the 12, and Thomas is not there. We have no idea where he was. No idea where he was, there's nothing in the Gospels that would make you think that Thomas is a bit of a slacker, Thomas is the kind of guy who's always missing roll call, Thomas is the guy who never makes it anywhere on time. There's nothing in the Gospels that would give us that indication. In fact, the little we know about Thomas seems to indicate 
he was a pretty devoted guy. He's got a couple other quotes in the Gospel of John. One of them is in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And at that particular moment in John chapter 11, what happens is that uh, Thomas is told by Jesus, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Thomas sort of takes in the idea that Jesus and the apostles are going to Jerusalem. He knows that people in Jerusalem want to kill Jesus. And Thomas is this awesome one-liner, let's go with him and die with him. Now, I don't know how he said it. It could have been like bold, just got recharged by the Holy Spirit. Let us go with him and die with him. Or it could have been like more Eeyore, puddle glum. Let's go. We'll probably die. (laughs) But either way, he's all in. Either way, Thomas is the kind of guy who's devoted. He's not the person you'd expect not to be there when the disciples are gathered in a closed room and then Jesus shows himself in his resurrection. Now, this morning, really all I wanna do, or most of what I wanna do, is just to tell the story of Thomas's encounter with the risen Lord. He did miss the first blush. He did miss the first appearance. But he wound up in the providence of God being there later when Jesus appeared. And when he appeared, he had, it's hard to know exactly what word to describe this with, but he had something of a conversion experience. I don't mean that Thomas went from being a pagan to being a Christian, from being an atheist to being a theist. Thomas had already been in with Jesus. He he believed in God. He believed in Jesus. But clearly in this passage, he's coming into the fullness of what it means to believe in Jesus, not just as a great rabbi or a mighty Messiah, but as his Lord and very pronouncedly, is God. It's actually Jesus who makes me view the whole story through a bit of a conversion lens. It's Jesus who will say at the climax of the story, do not disbelieve, but believe. Or even more startlingly in the Christian Standard Bible, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. And it's to that that Thomas answered him full of faith my Lord and my God. Knowing that, I think this story should be helpful to you for at least one of three reasons, and you might tap into all three, but at least one of three reasons. One, it's a conversion story, and Christians love conversion stories. Two, it's a story of a man who wasn't inclined to being converted. C.S. Lewis described himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. Thomas was certainly the most reluctant convert to a full-orbed faith in Christ of all the disciples. And on top of that, it's just a great story because, because Thomas was something of a believer already, and I know that's a little murky, hard to put the disciples at this season of redemptive history into the cleanest boxes. 
But what I love about this story of Thomas is it's a great story for any Christian who's gone through a serious time of unbelief and has entered into a season where they fully and completely believed anew, afresh, again. So let me tell you the story. Story begins with verse 24, a verse, honestly, that I, John kind of writes nonchalantly. It's pretty casually written. I think it probably made Thomas sick every time he read it. Made his heart do a little roller coaster ride. Now Thomas, one of the 12, even as a nickname, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Where it was, again, we don't know. Could have been, maybe there's a lady who always had a real nice lamb kebab on the Sabbath, he knew on the other side of town, and he decided he better check that out before things got serious. He's just not there, we don't know why, but he wasn't there. But while he wasn't there, the other guys, his buddies, Jesus' other disciples, they, they had gone through what can only be described as a life-changing experience. They had encountered the risen Lord. They had gone from, and we'll see this, I'll read it to you, fear to faith, worry to peace, disbelief to belief, and aimless to on a mission. They'd had all those transformations happen in their lives. Let me read you that, because it just happens in the paragraph before the ones we read. It happens in verses 19 through 23. And I want you to notice that these words, I think intentionally, both historically and literarily, sound almost identical to the ones we just read. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, first day of the week, that's the day Jesus rose from the dead, the door is being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They killed our master, maybe we should lock the door. Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Scaredy cats, peace. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. Then the disciples, who I don't think up until this point had been glad, were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, as if he wants it to really impact their hearts and not just be something they know, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So here's the picture, okay? James, John, the other guys, everybody but Thomas, they've just gone from deathly afraid to supernatural peace, They've just gone from, what are we gonna do with our life? Are we going back to fishing? To, we're on a mission to bring the forgiveness of sins to the ends of the earth. They've just gone from, did Jesus just suffer ultimate defeat to, apparently Jesus can walk through walls. 
And it's that room that Thomas enters into. Now that's a weird vibe, okay? Thomas, I don't know, maybe he's just had that good shawarma and he's a happy man at one level, but the last time he was there, it was a dour mood. He probably had to give the little special knock to get in the locked door. He gets in there and everything is happiness and brightness and everyone's singing hymns and praying and they're delighted and they're putting together the scriptures and understanding how it all met in the resurrection of Jesus. John is like, hey, you remember when he said that he'd be in the belly of the whale, uh, that he'd be in the belly of the earth like Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and Peter's like, oh, totally, I remember that. And do you remember when he said that he would destroy this temple and in three days he would rise it again? And the other disciples are like, I totally see that. And they're just scouring through the scriptures and Thomas is like, what did I miss? And they're like, we have seen the Lord. And I mean, come on, how, how do you want your friend to respond? Okay. You're witnessing at high octane levels. You're happy in Jesus. You're telling your friend, we've seen the Lord. And you'd think, you know, that he, I mean, you're not Judas. You're not stealing from the money bag. You didn't betray the Lord. You are a reliable, credible witness. And you're telling Thomas, who ought to believe you, we saw him. And Thomas goes straight, I need empirical evidence now on you. Just shut you down. Give me that scientific method right now or I am not believing a word that you say. And he says to them, verse 25, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You know, there's this sort of uh, long-standing belief that the people of the ancient Near East, uh, they just always believed in miracles. They were sort of leprechaun types, you know, who were always walking around going, hey, I saw someone rise from the dead. And they're like, oh, me too. You know, and then sort of like, they're just sort of ready for that. The reason Christianity exploded in the ancient world is because folks back then, you know, pre-education, pre-scientific method, all that kind of stuff, they're just always ready for a good miracle. Apparently that doesn't line up with the facts. Apparently there were people who were every bit as empirical and every bit as I won't believe it unless I see it personally as there are today. And Thomas, one of the original apostles, was one of them. So what's going on with Thomas right here? How are we supposed to read this? It's interesting, there's a lot of debate among commentators about how to read Thomas. What do we make of Thomas? Do you sort of look at this as a virtue? Come on, Th Thomas, you're awesome, you, you had doubt, you demanded that you see real proof. And so it's sort of this virtuous Thomas. Uh, John Calvin, the great theologian of the church, he viewed Thomas, this is his words, he was obstinate and monstrous. And maybe you're like me, I read that, and I'm like, Calvin, that, that just seems, I mean, I don't know if he's a virtuous guy for doing this, but obstinate and monstrous seems a little Seems a little harsh. I mean, all he was asking for was what the other guys already got, right? And that's what my kids do. 
They just want what the other guys got. They got to see him. Why don't I get to see him? Unless I see him, I'm not believing him. So how do we put together Thomas? Well, let me say a couple things about that. First thing I'll say is this. Before we uh, dismiss Calvin as too harsh, before we think it's too harsh to call Thomas monstrous, let me just remind you that the standard that God holds every human being to is that they should believe everything he says just because he says it. When he told Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of the forbidden fruit you will die, that was enough. No supplementary lecture needed to prove that you ought to obey what God said. When he said to the infertile Abraham, see all the stars in heaven, you're gonna have as many children as that. There was no apologetic discourse required to persuade Abraham to believe. God's word is always enough. And you might remember that the reason the human race got into so much trouble was because Eve decided that because things looked okay to her, God's word didn't matter as much as had originally been thought. So you can sort of see where Calvin's coming from when he calls Thomas monstrous. Maybe you could even think about this for a second. What Thomas has at that moment in that room, what he has in terms of real and spiritual witness to the truth of the resurrection is more than the 3,000 people who got saved on Pentecost had. He had actually heard Jesus say, on the third day, I will rise again. And then the 10 guys who were saying, we have seen the Lord, these weren't crackpots. These were the guys who went on to write the Bible. These were reliable witnesses. Thomas had every reason right there without anything else to believe. But he didn't believe. He kind of had an empirical temper tantrum insisting that things would be proven to him his way or he wouldn't be getting on the faith bandwagon. Maybe we don't want to call him monstrous, but maybe a modern commentator, D.A. Carson's a little more measured. Carson writes, it's hard not to perceive in this attitude at least a little of what Jesus had earlier condemned in John 4, 48. John 4, 48, Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Jesus was not eager to cater to a situation where mankind put themselves in a situation where they were gonna judge and jury over him. You pop out a miracle, Jesus, and then I'll believe you. Jesus like, everything I say, I say truly, truly before I say it, I'm, I'm reliable. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not proving myself to you. 
I'm the son of God. So here's Jesus trying to wean people off the drug of needing a miracle to believe anything he says. And now one of his own followers is clearly addicted to that same kind of thing. He wants a sign. He wants a display. He needs a personal little evidence session before he's going to believe. And so maybe not monstrous, but Thomas is definitely not in a good spiritual state. And I bet you've been in a bad spiritual state a time or two before too. I bet you told God a few things you're not supposed to tell God before you believed. And the amazing thing is that Jesus doesn't dig in his heels and say that's not the way it's supposed to go down. Jesus re-enters the same room for the second time to give Thomas everything he needs to believe. Now, before I read you this second re-entry into the room, I want to tell you a story, best I can remember it, from N.D. Wilson's notes from a tilt-a-whirl. And in uh, Notes from a Tilt-a-Whirl, a book that reads just like the title sounds, N.D. Wilson tells the story of this time, if I'm remembering correctly, that he and his wife and his daughter are walking through a park and a flurry of incredible butterflies begins to fill the sky. And their little girl is just amazed by all the beauty and glory and delicacy of all these butterflies. And then one of the butterflies lands right in the middle of her shirt. And you can just imagine a little toddler just <laughs> amazed by this just intricate display of fragility and beauty and glory just right there in her eyes. And then the butterfly flies off as soon as it lands. And the daughter kind of lifts up her shirt like, I want another one. And of course, mom and dad are right there to say, well, that doesn't happen, that doesn't happen. Lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place. Miracles happen occasionally, but not, not repeatedly. Let's get realistic, sweetheart. And then another butterfly lands. Because this is a world of miracles. It's a world of grace, it's a world of beauty, it's a world of glory. And here's Thomas. All his friends were in a locked room when Jesus came. And you gotta be thinking, that'll never happen again. I missed it. And then you get to verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside Again, second verse, same as the first. And this time something's different. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, can you guess what he'd say? Same thing he said last time. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, now before I read you what he said to Thomas, how did Jesus know what Thomas needed to hear? He says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, 
my Lord and my God. Now, you know, we've all got our list of things we want to ask people when we get to heaven. One of mine is, uh, at which point, Thomas, were you persuaded? Most commentators think he didn't have the temerity to actually put his fingers in Jesus' wounds. Things would have become uncovered much faster than that. The, the offer itself is sufficient for persuasion. So you wonder, when, when, when did it all kind of click? And I, I think Thomas will answer, you had me at walking through walls. But what Thomas got was a supernatural display, walking through walls, supernatural and personal knowledge. I know where you doubt. I know where you disbelieve. Then he had donkey riding humility offered to him. You, you need to touch? You need the ultimate sign. You need the sign which all other signs point to. You go ahead and explore. You go ahead and examine. You, you need to scrutinize me. You scrutinize. And as Thomas puts it all together in a moment, this man walked without sin. I heard this man was born of a virgin. This man, I watched him brutally splayed out on a cross. This man just walked through a wall. This man just told me peace. This man just offered me his wounds. This man knew to offer me his wounds. This man was willing to offer me his wounds. This man is not a man. This is not just a man. This is my Lord and my God. And it's amazing to me is the first time Jesus went into that room with those disciples, he commissioned them to go out on a mission to tell the world about him. And the second time he entered that same room, he takes the most doubting unbelieving of the bunch and uses him to give the confession that will be the foundation of that mission for 2,000 years. And hundreds of years after Thomas is gone, it's the confession of every Christian who's ever seen Jesus clearly that he is my Lord and my God. He saved me. That's the story. Now every story has got a point, and this one I think has at least four, and I'll tell them to you. The first point I'll try to bring out from this story, first lesson, if you will, is that Jesus really physically rose from the dead. It's not a metaphor. The resurrection is not sort of the spiritual equivalent of spring, just sort of a way to explain new life, ups after downs. 
The resurrection is a literal, physical reality in which the Son of God, whose flesh literally was torn, whose lungs literally stopped breathing, and whose heart literally stopped breathing, where that same Son of God, who bore the scars of the way he died, now literally and physically is given new life, a resurrection body, a body that has extreme consistency with the body he had before, same scars, and clearly has some supernatural perks. I don't know about you, but I only walk into walls. (laughs) The New Testament is always eager to impress upon us the physicality of our salvation. In Luke's gospel, Jesus follows up the resurrection by eating fish. And he says to his disciples in Luke's gospel, see my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What Jesus gave to the apostles, the 12, that first appearance in the room, what he gave to Thomas and the apostles, that second appearance in the room was, look at the scars, look at me. I am clearly the one you saw die, but I'm not dead. And the reason the physicality of the resurrection is so important is because our problems in this life really are physical. What sin does is ultimately destroys us as physical beings. Yes, we are spiritually dead, just unresponsive to God in our souls, separated from God, but the end result is wrinkles and death where we suffer and die. And Christ's cure is not just to give us a mental hope but to actually restore the physical goodness he originally made so that one day we will be completely resurrected like him and we will have what 1 Corinthians 15 calls incorruptible bodies. The other reason the resurrection is so important is because if you're here as an unbeliever and you're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm glad those Christians like that. I mean, I guess. I mean, if it gives them a little hope in a weary world, that's good. And, you know, we all need a little myth or comfort or story or some sort of explanatory power to make it through the difficulties of this life. And if those people kind of find their thing in talking about an ancient Jewish guy getting raised from the dead, then that's fine with me. Except that he actually was raised. He actually is God. And he actually is a ruling and reigning king And that actually is God's proof that you will someday be, not mythically or metaphorically, but literally judged. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. If you're thinking, hey, I just don't know. Well, those times are over. Times where it's okay just not to know, it's over. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, turn from their sins, because he has fixed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof that God intends to judge the world by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So first point, point of the story. Jesus really was physically raised. Second point, Jesus is really eager to persuade the reasonable and even the skeptical that his resurrection is true. He actually wants to spend time and energy persuading the reasonable and even the skeptical that he actually was raised. First point, he was raised. Second point, he actually wants you to believe that. First point, he was raised. Second point, he's actually willing to take the time like he took with Thomas to get down into whatever oppositions are in your mind to show you that he really rose from the dead. One of the great statements of the resurrection, one we often read on Easter Sunday, comes from 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, two primary things are said about the resurrection. One, it was according to the scriptures. That is, there were predictions of this before he was born, so that's striking. I mean, it's hard enough to predict what you'll do later this day, let alone have someone else predict what you'll do in life and death in your life, but that's what we're told and that's what happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But on top of that, we're told that there were not just one, not just two or three, which is the legally required amount, but there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrection. Let me read you the passage. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. That's Paul basically saying, don't believe me? Go ask the living guys who saw it. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I was thinking this week about the things I believe that 500 people haven't told me. I've been told for years that there are, there are caves under the Louisville Zoo. And for a price, you can even ride a zip line through them and apparently see lights underneath them. I've never been. I have a few sort of reliable friends who tell me they're there. I have absolutely no doubt these caves exist because it doesn't take a lot. And most of the things we believe, we do not have eyewitness experience of. I'm one of those radicals who believes the world is round. I think there really was a Holocaust. I think there really was one author to the Shakespearean plays. I have no eyewitness testimony to provide for you for any of it. 
And I bet if I dug through your mind and your mental space, you've got more than one belief that are just the same way. Things that you would die for that you are so confident they are true. Not because you saw them with your own eyes. We have, we have very little exposure, very little chance to have eyewitness access to everything in the world. We're very limited. But things can be reasonably believed when they are consistently testified to by multiple reliable witnesses. And frankly, you go through the history of the world and try to find all the things you know that have hundreds of reliable witnesses. And you'll be hard pressed to find anything as clear and as reliable as the New Testament's witness to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you might say to yourself, yeah, 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 I remember I said this earlier, but people back then, they just believed that stuff. Thomas, it's just not true. It's just not true that people back then believed that stuff. When people back then saw resurrections, they started a whole new religion. Because it wasn't normal to get out of the grave. It made you think maybe this one was God. That's how distinct the witness was. Third, third point of the story. Jesus will not appear to you personally to show you his scars. He will not appear to you personally as the word made flesh. But he will appeal to you personally from his word. I was thinking about how much trouble I could get myself into with the application portion of the sermon. And I, I was thinking, you know, what if the application is Jesus will meet you where you are? You know, hey, there's Thomas. Jesus met him where he was at. Jesus will meet you where you're at. And then he all of a sudden, like, well, do I get to touch the scars? Kind of a disappointing post-service discussion. No, you don't get to. So then how does Jesus meet me where I am? Jesus does not plan, in fact, has told us he will not return to let everyone who ever lived do a physical examination of himself. So we can't walk through life going, if I can't touch the scars, then I won't believe. Jesus hasn't promised that. But almost, if you will, anticipating the concern, as soon as Thomas believes, Jesus pronounces a blessing on people who believe without seeing, and then he tells us how people who don't see can come to believe. Follow that. He pronounces a blessing on people who believe without seeing, and he tells us how people who don't see can come to believe. Look at that in chapter 20. Right after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, Jesus isn't saying, blessed are those who are willing to turn their brain off, Thomas, and just believe. You had to use your brain, but in the future, I'll just require a leap of faith 
of thousands and millions of people. They just need to jump into the deep wide open and believe me. No, that's not what's intended here at all. No one's being asked to turn their brain off to be a Christian. Now he follows it up, or John follows it up with this line. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Thomas and that first generation were often given eyewitness opportunities to encounter the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And anticipating that there will be generations after Thomas, John tells us, I wrote down this gospel. And the reason I wrote down this gospel was not to get everything he ever did. He tells us later, if you wrote down everything Jesus ever did, the, the, the books of the world could not contain them. But I wrote down enough so that if you give this book a hard knock, a good solid looking at, a careful examination, an honest examination, you'll find that you too can believe, and here's the best part, in believing you can have the same new resurrection life that Peter came to know. You know, people are wired differently. Uh, we make too much of this sometimes, but it's still, it's still basically true. People are, they're wired differently. They're not wired fundamentally differently. It's not like some people use their heads only and some people use their hearts only, but people are wired. They, they, they sort of lean into one facet of the human experience. And it's amazing to me how the Bible meets all those facets. I mean, if you're a person who's like, I'm just walking through life and the leader is my head. My brain is my guide. My reason is where I go. I steer the ship of this thing with how I think. Amazing how conducive the Bible is to win you to Christ. We've actually been looking at that. Thomas, you need evidence? Here's the evidence. You need multiple witnesses? There were 500 who saw them. Some are alive still to this very day. You're like, I need this laid out in an orderly way for me. I don't need poems and weird mythical thoughts about Jesus. Someone give it to me straight. And Luke's gospel, here would be a place maybe you could start. Luke's gospel starts with these words. You think this is a man trying to appeal to the mind? Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. You a person who just comes at things with your mind, you got a friend, you think, man, they're smarter than me. I don't even know how I'd talk to them. Read them the Bible. It's laid out clearly and orderly to appeal to and has often been successful in winning the sharpest intellectuals of so many different ages. 
But then there's, you know, there's the feelers in this world. There's the feelers in this world. There's the people that their heads are always, they're trying to get their heads out front, but it never seems to work, right? They're walking through life thinking about the human condition and the human hungers and the human passions. And it's striking how the Bible speaks to those so that the people might believe. Even this Gospel of John, John says, I wrote these signs out to you, and the signs are so that you might believe. And then you go and look at the signs, and what are they? Jesus turning water into wine to show that he's the joy of wine, not the deadness of ritual water. Jesus saying, I am the living water. Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. Jesus giving blind men sight. Jesus coming to the heart, to those oriented to the heart. And Jesus continually speaking in such a way that says, everything you ever imagined about the needs of the human heart, I minister into. Emile Caillé was a Frenchman born in 1894. He grew up with a very naturalistic education, so the world as you see it, what you see is what you get. The natural world is all that, all that there is. Carl Sagan would later say, you know, the, world, the natural world is all there is and all there ever will be. So Kaye's coming through this life with this very naturalistic, there is no supernatural kind of anything to this world, and he experiences a great deal of suffering. He winds up in the foxholes of World War I. And Kaye begins to sense that he's got needs, spiritual needs, that he can't meet. And so he begins to compose what he calls the book that understands me. I love that. And he begins to find the best quotes in all of his studies, and he, and he begins to assemble them into one book so that, so that when he's up or when he's down, when he's, when he's discouraged or when he's encouraged, he can go to this book and find what he calls, I love this, a mead for his soul, wine for his soul. And he says he begins to read this book, and he says, the day came when I put the finishing touch to the book that would understand me, speak to my condition, and help me through life's happenings. A beautiful sunny day it was. I went out, sat under a tree, and opened my precious anthology. As I went on reading, however, a growing disappointment came over me. Instead of speaking to my condition, the various passages reminded me of their context, of the circumstances of my labor over their selection. Then I knew the whole undertaking would not work simply because it was of my own making. It carried no strength of persuasion. In a dejected mood, I put the little book back in my pocket. Same day, his evangelical wife, who he'd told, hey, honey, religion will have no place in this home. Same day, his wife lays hold of a French Bible and brings it to him. He writes, I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read, now aloud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder, and suddenly the realization dawned on me, this was the book that would understand me. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels, and lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive to me. He's alive because he rose from the dead. This could be said of the Bible because its pages were animated by the presence of the living God and the power of his mighty acts. To this God I prayed that night, and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in the book. 
You may not have the scars of Jesus to analyze, but you've got the book. And it's a book that speaks to the mind. And it's a book that speaks to the heart. And it's a book that also speaks to the conscience, isn't it? The conscience. One more way the Bible speaks. I've written these things so that you might believe. How do you come to believe? Well, you need a book that speaks to the conscience. The Bible tells us in every man there's a conscience that accuses men when they do wrong and excuses them when they do right. Some of us feel the raw nerves of our conscience as it exposes us all the day long with the things we've done wrong. Our society is one that's constantly trying to suppress the conscience. But it's like putting in cheap earplugs. It kind of helps you sleep. But you can really hear everything that's going on around you. You cannot suppress the conscience. Years ago, two gay men began attending Emmanuel, and I was thrilled they were attending. I suspected they were gay because they would hold hands during the service. And I didn't know if these men were uh, holding hands to provoke the conservative evangelical preacher, or if they just felt comfortable being themselves when they were here. I wasn't sure which. But it was a delight just after the service just to begin to know them, get to talk to them, and get to know a little bit of their story. And eventually I invited them out for lunch, and we talked about all kinds of things, and finally got around to the topic of homosexuality and the Bible, and one of them had a religious background, so these weren't foreign categories or thoughts to them. And finally in the conversation I said to them, I said, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me. I said, I said, you know, there's been some terrible times for homosexuality, times when that's brought about physical violence, uh, certainly times where there's been people who've been cruel. I said, but, but let's, let's be honest, I mean, you know, right about now in human history, it's relatively speaking pretty good. You got pride movements, you got, you got parents who when you tell them you're a sodomite, tell, them, tell you that you're proud of them. It's a pretty different season. It's a season where you can get actually a lot of acceptance, where there's actually sort of things are going in your favor. And these guys said, you know, that's totally true. I said, isn't it interesting then that in this particular moment where everything is about pride and acceptance and receiving where you're at and, and you're actually being affirmed by family and even churches, isn't it striking that you still feel such profound shame? And they were silent. They were silent. And they agreed. And the reason they agreed is because they, there's a reality that's deeper than culture's excuses. And that reality is the conscience that God has placed in every man, woman, and child. And it doesn't just apply to homosexual sin, it applies to all sin. The conscience is there saying, this does not accord with God or God's law, it's wrong. And then there's the gospel in the Bible, looking at Jesus, saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Wherever you're at, conscience, heart, mind, 
some mixture of all three, which is where we all are. God has a word to you about his son who died on the cross for sinners and rose again to save any and all who believe. And you may be throwing a fit like Thomas. Unless I get this, I won't believe that. Go at the book with whatever you got. Take it to task. See if he doesn't meet you. And see if he doesn't show you what he's shown of thousands and thousands over thousands and thousands of years. He will be your Lord. And he will be your God. Won't you repent and trust in him this morning? And if you're a believer, won't you just say it, Lord, I still do. I still do. You're my bread, you're my wine, you're my water, you're my, you're my knowledge, you're my wisdom, you are my relief from guilt, you are the forgiveness of my sins, you who rose from the dead. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. We pray that we would all believe and glorify you and be saved and know the power of an indestructible life, an eternal life that you give. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.